Welcome to the Purposeful Life Podcast, a podcast designed for the woman who desires to live out her wildest dreams. Everyone has a purpose in life, and within that purpose lies a unique talent just waiting to be expressed and shared with the world. I'm your host, Nora Knajian, Certified Health and Wellness Coach. I can't wait to talk all things wellness, lifestyle, psychology, and current events that impact our well-being with you. Hello, podcast fam. Welcome back to this week's episode. I am so excited. I feel like I say that every week, but I truly am excited. If I wasn't, then I wouldn't really choose a topic to talk about it. So I'm bringing in lots of energy on this topic. It is on psychology of relationships. I'm so excited about today's topic, truthfully, because I know some friends that are going through breakups. I know some friends who are recently getting married. I'm currently in a relationship. I have friends who have been single for a very long time. So this episode pretty much is catered to anyone who is interested to learn more about the psychology of relationships. And I'm going to talk about different types of theories and therapies and experiences and whatnot. So tune into this week's episode if you are interested to hear more about it. So if you know me or you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know that I have a background in psychology and I'm super nerdy with it. I love it. It's so fascinating. The human brain is just magical and I love learning about it and sharing what I learned. So psychologists who specialize in relationships are primarily interested with how relationships work and why they either flourish or break down. The modern approach to relationship psychology is based on the premise that people choose their partners through a combination of biological, social, and environmental factors. And the key factor for people to build romantic relationships and families is their genetic drive to form and maintain relationships. So I'm definitely going to nerd out on this episode. So if you're interested in stuff like that, this might be an episode that might be one of your favorites. So there's a psychologist named John Bowlby, and he first developed an attachment theory in 1958 which backed by research in both human relationships and those of other species, and found out that a child's earliest experiences dictate what kind of relationships they form as adults. Multiple studies support this theory, including Harry Harlow's experiments with monkeys in the 1950s and 60s. And his findings show that monkeys who were denied the affection of their own mother grew up to be more timid, less sure of how to behave with other monkeys, and less able to mate. Fast forward to the 1970s, Mary Ainsworth, built on previous experiments, observed that interactions between human mothers and infants through a one-way mirror showed that children with mothers who were highly responsive to their needs developed a sense of security in their attachment that children with less sensitive mothers lacked. This security, or lack thereof, forms the foundation of adult relationships. So I'm going to pause for a second. Maybe you've heard the term your inner child or childhood traumas. A lot of our psyche is based on that of when we were younger as children and what we 
perceived and what we lived through and what our experiences were as a child. Most of our thought patterns now are formed mainly of what our experiences and whatever our paradigms were as children. Whether you're in a healthy relationship or your relationship is kind of on the rocks, you might have heard of couples therapy and all sorts of therapy when needed, when desired, I highly encourage you to look into because it can be life-changing. So I wanna touch on couples therapy for a second. Couples therapy emerged as a psychological tool in the 1990s. Couples therapy was aimed at getting two individuals to agree to bury their differences. But based on extensive research, therapists now recognize that conflict in a relationship is inevitable. So couples therefore should try to either accept the conflict and repair rifts to improve communication rather than burying their feelings and growing emotionally distant and also be emotionally open and overcome fears of expressing a need for closeness. Couples that play together do genuinely stay together. And by enjoying the small stuff of your daily life together, you can build a strong lasting relationship. Again, I highly encourage you to check it out if you would like to make your relationship stronger. Again, it doesn't have to be when you need it or when your relationship is dependent on it. I think having an outside perspective looking in, especially from a professional, could be helpful. I touched on psychology and attachment, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into this. One of the dominant theories in a relationship psychology is that a person's childhood experiences of attachment, like you heard in the previous example I gave, um, formed with a caregiver influences how they behave with their partner as an adult. So let's go all the way back and for maybe some not too far back, maybe for others a little while back when we were cute little tiny teeny babies. The principle that the way in which a person bonds as a baby can actually dictate how they bond as an adult. I'm sure you're familiar with the name Sigmund Freud. Um, He's a psychoanalyst and a lot of our psychology studies, he has a great impact in those. There's different types of psychoanalysts, why can't I say the word, psychoanalysts that are also popular. Um, But if you've taken any one-on-one class, Freud comes up many times. Anyway, he was interested in how early childhood experiences affect us later in life. Now let's go back to that name I dropped earlier, Mr. Bowlby. He believed that everyone is born with an instinctive need to form attachments in order to survive, that everyone needs to have one close continuous bond for the first two years of their life. And that failure in this process may cause depression, heightened aggression, suppressed intelligence, and difficulty showing affection as a child and later in life. So over all the decades of studies, psychologists expanded and refined Mr. Bowlby's hypothesis, creating experiments to observe how infants behave with their mothers or their caregivers. This research actually revealed that the key in developing attachments is not who feeds or changes the baby, but who communicates and plays with them. It shows that individuals develop different ways of attaching to other people. 
These styles of attachment emerge during early childhood and go on to shape relationship choices and behavior as adults. Today, psychologists have recognized four attachment styles, and I'm going to share those with you guys in childhood and four linked attachments in adulthood. So you're going to want to take notes. This is going to be a super detailed episode, but I want to give you all the information on this as I can and not have it be a lengthy episode, but I might break it down if I get too excited. But I just want you to know all the information. This is super interesting stuff, and it actually might be useful for you to be more self-aware. And yeah, so I want to share this. So if you want to take notes, feel free to do so. For all my fellow visual learners out there, I want you to make two columns and label the first column childhood attachment and the second column adulthood attachment. Next, create four rows because we're going to talk about the four attachment styles. So in the first row, first column, write down secure. So this is going to be under the childhood attachment. When a child feels sure that their needs are met, they develop a secure attachment. The mother or the caregiver is sensitive to the child's needs, responding quickly and regularly. The child is happy enough to explore their environment and feels secure. Next, go to the right under the adulthood attachment, same row. Again, write secure. As an adult, they feel confident in relationships and are willing to ask for help from a partner, as well as offer support and comfort to their partner when necessary. They retain independence, but are loving towards their partner. Under column one, in the second row, write ambivalent. The child does not believe the caregiver can be relied on to meet their needs. The caregiver's behavior is inconsistent. Sometimes they're sensitive, sometimes they're neglectful. The child becomes anxious, insecure, and maybe frustrated. In the second column, second row, so across from ambivalent, write down anxious, preoccupied. So anxious-preoccupied. Now you're going to see a pattern here. As you're writing these down, the childhood attachment secure leads to a secure adulthood attachment. The ambivalent attachment leads to an anxious preoccupied attachment. So, okay, column two, row two, we've written anxious preoccupied. So the constant fear of rejection drives this adult to be clingy, demanding, and maybe surfacing a obsessive, not wanting to be separated from their partner lifestyle. Their relationships are driven by emotional hunger rather than real love and trust. Now, first column, third row, you're going to write down avoidance. If the caregiver is distant and someone unresponsive to the child's needs, that child also becomes emotionally distant, subconsciously detecting that their needs are unlikely to be met. They've accepted this, and the child doesn't really develop a secure attachment, which then leads to, so go across from that, second column, third row, the dismissive avoidant, so dismissive-avoidant. And this adult can be emotionally distant. The adult appears to be self-focused and independent. The independence is an illusion, though. 
uh, a result of denying the importance of loved ones. If their partner is upset and threatens to end the relationship, they appear to not care. And then lastly, back to the first column under childhood attachment, fourth row, you're gonna write disorganized. So this unpredictable caregiver scares the child, is either abusive or extremely neglectful. And because of their passive frightened state, this distressed child then grows up with a sense of withdrawal and unresponsive and confused lifestyle with no strategy for having their needs met. And then across from that, that leads to a fearful avoidance. So fearful dash avoidance. The top portion of this graph that we've created is more of the positive attachment styles. And as you go down, it becomes more extreme, more severe, and more detrimental. So I want to give you a little more examples on the romantic attachments. To form a happy, successful romantic relationship, it helps to understand how the different adult attachment styles work in partnerships. So people with secure attachment styles generally have the most stable relationships. Those with less secure styles need to work harder at creating a romantic or maintaining a romantic partnership. The pairings I'm gonna share are based on the original three attachment styles that psychologist Mary Ainsworth, who I mentioned before, from a 1970 psychological experiment revealed. So a minority of people can have both anxious and avoidant qualities, in which case they should learn about how both anxious preoccupied and dismissive avoidant types behave in different pairings. So let's create hypothetical romantic relationships here. So for the first example, let's pair up an anxious preoccupied with another anxious preoccupied style. This coupling may have a passionate relationship, but given the emotional intensity of both partners, there may also be extreme highs and lows that ultimately pull the couples apart. Another example is one of anxious preoccupied and a dismissive avoidance. This difficult pairing reinforces the couple's self-images. The anxious person fears rejection, so it has to grow stronger for the relationship to last. The avoidant fears intimacy, so they need to grow closer to their partner. A third example is an anxious preoccupied and someone who's secure. And in this relationship, the secure partner can help the anxious one become less so. Since each party seeks intimacy and the secure person is able to calm their partner's anxieties and meet their needs. So it actually might work out positively for them. A fourth example is a dismissive avoidance and another dismissive avoidant. So this pairing rarely results in a long-term relationship since neither person can really commit. Again, not always, but generally speaking, this is what had been discovered in that experiment that I referred to in previously. So most avoidant individuals desire to connect with someone, but other avoidant is unlikely to bridge the gap. So imagine having this seesaw experience with commitment issues from either party. In a fifth example, let's look at a dismissive avoidance and a secure individual. Now this can be a potentially strong coupling. The secure person can help the avoidant feel less trapped by giving them space, which in turn encourages the avoidant to relax, to enjoy, and learn to be intimate in the relationship. 
And then lastly, number six, a secure individual and another secure individual. With both partners easily able to share intimacy and communicate their needs and concerns, this should be a perfect match, providing fulfillment in both parties. And since we're already talking about romantic relationships here, I also want to share some information on the science of love. And psychologists have carried out numerous scientific studies on this as they attempt to understand the process of falling in love and analyze how a person's mind works when they are in love. So a scientific approach to the reason that people fall in love or commit to a relationship may seem contrary to the idea of romance. But psychologists have said some interesting explanations on this, and I'm going to share those with you. So in the 1960s, there was a theory put forward called the mere exposure effect, which was based on the observations of people in the same apartment building. The theory showed that one of the main reasons that an individual becomes attracted to another individual is due to the regular close physical proximity. And in another study done in the 1980s, which was called the investment model, studied college students and came up with a mathematical explanation as to why people choose to commit or not and why they may stay in an unhappy relationship. More recently, an anthropologist named Helen Fisher and her colleagues identified three stages of falling in love. There's lust, there's attraction, and there's attachment, which are in part governed by humans' innate need to reproduce for species survival, um, any, every species has this. Though people are usually unaware of this deep-seated urge, each stage of love is driven by chemicals that affect both emotions and behavior. So let's talk about then the chemistry of love. There are many studies that point to the role played by the brain's chemical reactions when a person falls in love. So bear with me because we're getting even nerdier. Scientists believe that the neurotransmitters flood the brain with chemicals such as adrenaline, dopamine, and serotonin that make up the person feel on a high and cause them to consistently think about their partner. This physical reaction is reflected in their behavior. And according to the research, a desire in the first few minutes of meeting is displayed through body language and the tone and speed of a voice rather than what is actually being said. So in the study, which was done in Italy, Psychologists took blood samples from newly infatuated couples and revealed that their serotonin levels were similar to those found in people with OCD. Now keep listening. Scents play a part too. A Swiss study found that women preferred the smell of men whose immune systems were genetically different from their own. Although it's not a conscious preference, their choice of men who had genetically different immune systems would if translated into a real-life pairing, produce the healthiest offspring. So there's a lot of this stuff that's happening in our bodies, our innate chemistry to survive as a species, to our body knows so much than we give it credit. So let's talk a little bit more about this chemical attraction. So blood samples were taken from research subjects in different stages of a relationship. And scientists have measured the changes that take place in hormone levels at each stage of the relationship. So from the first rush of desire through deep attachment to commitment. So remember when we talked about Helen Fisher's experiments with identifying the three stages of falling in love, lust, attraction, attachment. So let's see what the 
blood samples gave for these three attachments. In lust, the sex hormones, so testosterone in men and estrogen in women, drive this first stage of love. In attraction, adrenaline provides a rush of excitement, quickening the pulse. Dopamine gives more energy and less need for sleep and food. And serotonin fuels a happy feeling as well as sexual desire. And lastly, in the attachment stage, oxytocin, which is released during an orgasm, makes a person feel closer to their partner after sex. Vasopressin is also released after sex and is thought to promote an individual sense of devotion to their partner. How cool are our bodies? I mean, seriously. So then we have all this knowledge, we have all this science facts and studies. Now, how do we apply that in our day-to-day -day life if we're currently wanting to be in a relationship or are in a relationship? How does dating work then? Don't worry, I'm not going to give you pointers and tips here. This is not the podcast for that. I'm just here to share some information on the nerdy stuff behind dating. Most relationships begin with a date. I don't know what it's like nowadays, but for some, going on dates can cause some anxiety. So my intent here is to help you better understand the psychology behind dating so it can maybe help you succeed and help determine a good match. So let's talk about the quest for love. Advice on dating may seem like the domain of pop psychology, but research into the science of relationships has yielded useful insights into how people behave during dates and how to improve the chance of romance. So psychologists advise adopting the same approach, whether finding a partner through traditional or online dating. Dating is a numbers game, and so the chances of finding a compatible partner are slim. The first date should therefore be short, an initial screening, let's say, since most serious relationships start to bloom around the second or third date stage. While there is no fail-safe formula for dating success, psychologists emphasize the importance of keeping an open mind. Physical attraction is usually apparent within the first few minutes of meeting someone. But according to research, around 20% of spouses did not wholly like their partners at first and only warmed up to them on later dates. For a person who is looking for a serious relationship, let's say, there is a simple psychological strategy to employ. A person should gradually reveal their likes and hopes and observe how the date responds and behaves in order to evaluate how good or potential match they might be. Maybe he hates the things that you hate. Maybe he hates the things that you like. Bring it all forth on the table. If it's not meant for you, then it wasn't yours to begin with. I, as I get older, I totally see the value of this more and more. If there is values that you have that are important to you, I honestly think bringing them up on the first date will, again, be a great way to screen someone, right? So maybe you're not a good fit for them, but also maybe they're not a good fit for you. Miscommunication and heightened sensitivity can undermine the dating process by causing people to jump into incorrect conclusions. So an example for this is that maybe a delayed response to a text signals a lack of interest, or the fact that someone who's not ready to say I love you means that maybe they're not interested in continuing the relationship. Now I wanna share some key signs that might be helpful 
to evaluate if two individuals like each other. There are some obvious cues to look for on the first date. You can look for body language and speech. There are various theories here about what draws people to one another. So let's talk about the body language of attraction. Dilating pupils, tilting the head slightly, looking at eyes, lips, eyes. We'll call it the flirty triangle. Smiling to project positive vibes, mirroring the body language. Stroking hair, fiddling with necklace, blushing, leaning in towards the date, pulling sleeves up to show wrists, touching accidentally maybe, pointing feet at your date as you sit across from your date, and lastly, laughing. And as I wrap up this episode, I want to share some information and references for you if you are interested in dating coaching. For those who are having trouble attracting a long-term partner or feel like they're attracting the wrong kind of person, a psychologically qualified dating coach may actually be helpful for you. Dating coaches train their clients to communicate more confidently and to hone important dating skills such as flirting, body language, personal presentation, and how to pace the rate of self-disclosure. A dating coach can also explore any psychological barriers that a client may be putting up. They can help the client to develop a realistic profile of the kind of person they want to meet. And they can also advise them on strategies for meeting more compatible prospects. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let me know if this episode resonated with you. I'm genuinely intrigued and I could talk about more details of the psychology of relationships. If you are interested, please DM me on Instagram or in the show reviews. Let me know. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time. Wait, wait, before you leave, I just want to thank you for being here and listening to this episode. I would really appreciate it if you could share this podcast with a loved one, colleague, classmate, whoever you'd like, because together we can help spread encouragement, education, and inspiration to help others live out their purpose-driven lives. Thank you again for tuning in this week, and until next week, be well.